This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Before I introduce the topic for this conversation, I wanted to take a second to note this is episode number 100. Doing this show started in July of 2017 while I was teaching religious studies to high school students in Columbia, Missouri. A year and a half later, here I am at episode 100. This show is a true labor of love. This is the greatest hobby I've ever had. The intrinsic reward and motivation I've received from doing this show is immeasurable. I'm proud of myself that I've stuck with the show and continued to do it despite the challenges of doing it. I do all the booking, communicating, publicity, outlining, studying, recording, editing, and publishing. All things considered, an episode takes anywhere from 8 to 16 hours to complete. I'm grateful to my friend, Derek Streibig, who has soundtracked every episode with his fantastic array of music. I'm also very grateful to the guests. I've had some of my favorite conversations ever on this show, and I'm grateful to every guest who says yes to my email invitation with the subject line, Invitation Classical Ideas Podcast. If you've taken the time to open that email yourself and accept that invitation, please know how grateful I am to you. If you are a new listener or an old listener, please find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. Find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast. You can also follow my travel photos on Instagram at instagram.com slash the classical ideas podcast. You can write to me at classical ideas at outlook.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to check out this podcast among the hundreds of thousands you could be listening to. I'm grateful. Today's guest is Dr. Alicia Batten, and we are discussing the Epistle of James. Alicia Batten is Professor of Religion and Theological Studies at Conrad Grable University College at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. She is a scholar and specialist of the Letter of James, Social History of Christian Origins and Early Christianity, and History of Biblical Interpretation. Our conversation today ranges from the authorship of James, Quelle, the purpose of the Epistle of James, and what James means today. This conversation was a true delight because the Epistle of James is one of my favorite biblical texts. 
in preparation for this episode with Dr. Batten. I read some of her intriguing articles, notably The Jesus Tradition in the Letter of James from Review and Expositor, and The Degraded Poor and the Greedy Rich, Exploring the Language of Poverty and Wealth in James from The Social Sciences and Biblical Translation, edited by Dietmar Neufeld. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Alicia Batten on episode number 100 of Classical Ideas. Dr. Alicia Batten, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. It's good to be here. I just want to start by having you um, give a brief introduction to your academic field of expertise and where you are in the world. Sure. Great. Well, thanks, Greg. Well, I'm a professor of religious studies and theological studies. I'm located at Conrad, Conrad Grable University College, which is affiliated with the University of Waterloo, which is in Waterloo, Ontario. I'm Canadian. I uh, did all my studies in Canada, although I did teach for 10 years in the United States, in Minnesota and Washington State, two wonderful states. Um, and I'm primarily a, a New Testament scholar, so I work on the letter of James, obviously, that we're going to talk about today. But I teach the New Testament more broadly and other early Christian literature, so I'm very focused on contextual study of the Bible. So I'm I'm interested in understanding how these texts, what kind of culture these texts came from. So what were the social values, the cultural values? Uh, what was life like in the first century Mediterranean? So I really think we have to root these texts in the context in which they emerged in order to try to understand them historically. Uh, so James is a big focus. I'm interested in social history more generally. So history of dress, actually questions of gender uh, in the ancient world, questions of ancient economics, um, and also the history of biblical interpretation. So how has the Bible been interpreted through the ages? That's really interesting to see how uh, people have shifted in the way they've read the Bible over time, um, because it's dramatically different from age to age. And you see that with James, you see that with all kinds of, of documents in the Bible. So that's basically it. Wonderful. That's so cool. Uh, I'm always interested in the origins of a guest's interest. So um, uh -huh. if you look way back in your career, can you tell me about how you became interested in the study of Christianity in general as an academic discipline? Like what really drew you into the topic and made you mm -hmm. make a life out of it? Right. Well, I mean... I did take a world, I was lucky enough, I went to a small high school, but I was lucky enough that our history teacher uh, one year decided to teach a world religions class, which I took and I loved it. Um, we studied basically Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. And that was just, that opened my world to all these different religious traditions. I do come from a Christian background, so I was raised in a liberal Protestant denomination, and that was not a an unhappy experience, but I wouldn't say that I was really into church or anything like that. Um, but I took this high school course, and that 
caused me to become more interested in religion. And then when I went to university, I went to McGill University for my undergrad and uh, was not a religious studies major, but I took a few religious studies courses. And I took one in particular called the History of Christian Thought which I just loved. Like I had no idea before that you could actually ask these questions of the Christian tradition. Sure. And I kind of wondered about things as a kid, like the Bible didn't make a whole lot of sense to me as a kid, but I didn't know if I could ask yeah. <laughs> about it or not. And so um, I discovered in these classes that in fact, people make their living asking these questions <laughs> about the Bible. So that was that was really exciting. And so I just knew, oh, you know, I was lucky enough to have parents who encouraged education. And so um, I just knew I had to keep going. Uh, so I started out thinking I wanted to study Christian theology because I had read some theologians in my undergrad that I found really interesting, especially on this idea of the idea that God could suffer. That was just an interesting idea to me. But as I started taking um, some theology courses in my MA, I realized I wanted actually to go back to studying the New Testament because um, I found that sometimes theologians would sort of uh, proof text from the Bible, and I wasn't always uh, sure that the way they were interpreting a text was what it actually meant. Or I just wondered about that sometimes. I'm mm -hmm. not saying they're wrong. I just wondered about that, and that led me... Um, sort of by fits and starts to end up in New Testament studies. So, yeah, it was not a big plan, you know, from the time I was six or yeah. anything like that. One thing kind of led to another. Um, but, yeah, I was just lucky enough to have some good teachers, to take some interesting courses, and uh, and to come from a context which encouraged curiosity and, and education in general. So, so now... Yeah, so now as a professor, you, I mean, you've probably taught so many undergraduate courses and graduate courses now. Do you get to see students in your, like, undergrad courses having the experience that you yeah. had where they're like, whoa, I can ask questions like that? That's right, yeah. And that's that's one of the things that makes teaching so rewarding. Um, even this, this week, I had a student, she's actually a math major, but is minoring in religious studies. And so I was talking with her after class, and she was just saying how you know, after each class, she spends the day thinking about the questions that we're talking about in class. And you just, oh, this is fantastic. I mean, even if you get some students who may not be into it, you always get some who are. And that's just, it's just so wonderful when that happens. It's so yeah. rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> so after that initial interest in studying Christianity arose, take me into the moment where you can pinpoint your origins of being interested in the five pages of the letter oh. or epistle of James. Like, yeah. what is the, what is the thing that's you into the epistle of James that uh, took you through the, the next part of your career? Mm -hmm. Well, during my MA, I wrote a thesis, and the thesis uh, focused on the historical Jesus. Uh, so that's where I got a little bit into the study of what we call Q, which I think we're going to talk about a little, little bit later on. Definitely. But that's, that's this uh, hypothetical source that may lie behind the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, uh, but not the Gospel of Mark or John. Um, so I did my MA thesis on the historical Jesus and some of the tough sayings of Jesus were some of the so-called anti-family sayings. I was trying to understand them in the context of, uh, first century Mediterranean family structures. But then, um, 
I thought, well, I don't know if I want to do a PhD on on the figure of Jesus because there's just there's a lot of work done on Jesus, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I read James, and James, I think, as we're going to talk about a little bit, there's interesting parallels between the letter of James and some of the teachings of Jesus that you find, particularly in Matthew and Luke. So that made it intriguing. Also, James is really unique in the New Testament. It's one of the few documents, if not the only document, that does not reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus in any kind of explicit way. So that's strange because that becomes central to the early Christian proclamation. For example, Paul, the Apostle Paul, central to his proclamation is the gospel message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and yet James is silent on this. James is more interested in the teachings of Jesus, even though he doesn't explicitly attribute them to Jesus. So I wondered what's going on there, and that just made James really interested, interesting to me because I am very interested in the teachings of Jesus, um, and so it's just fascinating to see an early Christian document that uses those teachings. Uh, and yet does not reflect on the death and resurrection. There's nothing about the life of Jesus, nothing about the miracles or anything like that. So I think that it just, it really stands out as this uh, unique document. There's a lot of emphasis on economics, on poverty and wealth. Uh, and I'm interested in ancient economics, interested in kind of social justice questions in general. So all of those reasons, I think, uh, led me to want to write about James. Okay, so we need to talk a little bit about who James was. And there are yeah. theories out there about who James was. I've read some people even state definitively who James mm -hmm. was. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, reading your work, it's very cautious about identifying James. And if we're speaking historically, I'm curious if you can say what you think we can know for sure about the author of James. Yeah, it, well, I, I think it's hard to identify who wrote this text it's attributed to James, and most there are multiple Jameses in the New Testament. There is one James, though, who emerges as quite significant in early church. This is James the Just, or sometimes James the Righteous, uh, thought to have been the brother of Jesus. Uh, and uh, he's mentioned by Paul, for example, as one, as one of the pillars of the church. Um, he was killed in the early 60s, but uh, those, uh, when you look at the letter of James, it does claim, it says James, a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is claiming to be a James. And if it's claiming to be James, it probably means that James because he was the most significant James in the early church. And ancient writers would often claim to be someone who they were not. Mm -hmm. It's not that uncommon to find what we call uh, pseudonymous writers. That it that literally means false author, but in but uh, you do find ancient writers doing this quite often. So that would give the letter a lot more legitimacy, a lot more clout if it was associated with this particular figure in the early church. And certainly, scholars today there are scholars who today who think he and he did indeed write it. So it's a big item of debate. Um, I don't know that we can know. I think it's probably written later than, you know, than this particular James actually lived. Um, 
but it's written by someone who's clearly literate, uh, someone who uh, knew Greek, uh, was a Hellenistic figure, probably a Jew. Um, the The syntax of the letter is not all that complex, and yet it uses very interesting and sometimes very rare vocabulary. So it's like it's writing, uh, and it it draws on ancient rhetoric as well. There's debate about how it's structured overall rhetorically, but you do see certain rhetorical patterns in the letter. So it's obviously from an educated person. Um, where that person was is not clear, but I think it's probably an urban context. I think the author's writing for a literate, urban um perhaps a mixed audience of mixed social status, um, but certainly people who could uh, share their wealth because he is exhorting them to share their wealth with other people. Um, but I think it's it's hard to define, it's hard to say definitively just who that person was. Is it <laughs> reasonable to suggest that the author of James knew Jesus personally? Um I, I doubt it. I, I think it's probably written a little later um, after the death of Jesus. Uh, so I, I uh, you know, there are, there are scholars who would say, yes, this author, you know, it was the brother of Jesus. He did know Jesus, but um, I, I, I doubt it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, have you, in the last couple of years, um, I've seen you know, the popularity and citation of James floating around on the internet a lot. Have you seen yeah. the popularity and citing of James changing at all in the last couple of years? I think it's increasing. Um, that may in part just be because it had been ignored for many centuries, relatively ignored at least. Um, you may know that Martin Luther uh, did not like the letter of James very much. He called it a, an epistle of straw. Mm. Um, not all the reformers uh, disliked James, but Luther didn't. And so much of New Testament scholarship comes out of the German tradition. I think Luther had a huge impact on the interpretation of James. But in the Calvinist tradition, for example, Calvin, like James, used James. Um, I've done a little bit of work on the early Anabaptists, that is the the predecessors to the Mennonites and the Amish and so forth, and they they certainly liked and used James, so it, it wasn't universally rejected at the Reformation. But I think in part, you know, it ha relative to Paul and the study of the Gospels, it hadn't been studied as much, so now it is. I think there's been... Um, progress made in terms of studying the rhetoric of the letter and the structure and there's more appreciation for uh, the literary skill that's gone into creating this letter so that's possibly led to the increase in interest in this letter um, more work on this relationship between the letter of James and the Jesus tradition I mean that's always been noticed in the history of interpretation that's not new that people see parallels there but there's been more uh, research done on, you know, how exactly is he citing Jesus uh, or why does he not refer explicitly to Jesus? I think more work has gone into that. And so that, I think, in turn has led to the increase in the study of James. Interesting. Okay, so earlier you talked about Q, and Q is something that I've never really talked about on this show, but it's mm -hmm. it, it means quelle or source. Um, right. 
And so you say in an article that I read of yours that it's a lost but reconstructed source that Matthew and Luke's authors used, but that which were not used in Mark and John. Mm -hmm. So what can we know about this source Q, and what do you think that James gleaned from Q? Right. Well, um, scholars have reconstructed Q. There was actually something called the International Q Project. Oh, neat. Uh, yeah, that has um, produced many publications on what they think Q looked like. Um, many think it was a written source in Greek uh, that itself may have gone through multiple redactions or editorial stages, but it would have consisted primarily of sayings or teachings of Jesus, so very little narrative. Um, the temptation story, for example, might have become part of a certain stage of the Q tradition, but overall it's mostly teachings of Jesus, so parts of the Sermon on the Mount, for example, um, there's thought to have been a Q sermon that perhaps Matthew and Luke both used. Um, so it's not a narrative, it's a saying source, and that would not be so weird in the ancient world. We do have in we do have ancient wisdom collections from a variety of cultures where the sayings of a wise teacher are preserved. So it's just so-and-so said, so-and-so said, so-and-so and said. And for example, in the Christian tradition, there is a de- text called the Gospel of Thomas that does exist. Um, it was written in Greek and then translated into Coptic, and they have found the Coptic version. They found that in 1945 in Nag Hammadi in Egypt. So that's a legitimate source. In fact, it some of the teachings of Jesus in that source parallel some of the teachings in, in Q, but it's not thought to have been Q. <laughs> They're okay. not the same thing. Um, and Thomas also has other things in it. Um that some scholars think may indeed go back to Jesus. So the idea of Q is not strange uh, when you think about genres of literature from the ancient world, but um, there are some who do not uh, accept the the Q hypothesis. That is, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you notice there is some sort of literary relationship between the two, between the three, because there are word-for-word parallels in the Greek, like somebody's copying from somebody else. (laughs) But the most common solution is that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source, and then they also used another source, Q, but then they each used their own independent tradition, and they call that M and L, basically. Um, Zondergut, it means sort of uh, set apart, tradition set apart. Um, But the most common solution then to the synoptic problem is that Mark and Q are sources for Matthew and Luke, as well as M and L. There have been other solutions put forward, but that two-source theory, um, sometimes called the four-source theory, is the most common solution. Okay, and then in in the article you also mentioned that James is likely from a Mathean community. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't, there are some scholars that think James knew Matthew. Okay. Um, Dale Allison, uh, he's a great scholar, written a lot on on James. He thinks uh, James may be familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. I'm not sure about that because there's a lot in Matthew that 
is not in James, obviously. I mean, James is short, so it's, it's obviously it's not a gospel. But um, James does show familiarity with features of Matthew um, that are not in Luke. So, for example, the the saying about not uh, swearing an oath, for example, that shows up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but it's not in Luke. But that does show up in James 5. Um, so it could be that James is familiar with some form of cue that Matthew used. See what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. not necessarily the Gospel of Matthew, but some source that Matthew used. Um, so that's what I mean by that. I don't know that James was, nece- I'm not sure if he was familiar with Matthew's Gospel, but he was familiar with some. Q Matthew, if you will, okay, <laughs> some kind of tradition that that Matthew used because it does reflect some of these details that show up in Matthew but do not show up in Luke. Yeah. Okay, so um, I have a, a friend who's a past guest on this show, and she's a New Testament archaeology scholar from the University uh-huh. of Missouri. Her name's Carrie Duncan. Okay. And um, I was talking to her the other day, and I asked her what would be really useful to audiences to ask you about James. And she suggested that I ask you about the social circumstances in which the letter of James was written. So Uh I would love to hear your thoughts on what was going on um, in that community, such that the writer felt that it necessary to communicate the particular ideas that we find in James. Mm -hmm. So I want to know about those first century contexts that you were mentioning earlier. Right. It is tricky because, you know, these ancient writers don't tell us where they're writing or when they're writing or who they're, he doesn't, he just says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion or the diaspora. So he doesn't say where they are. And there's debate about is that literally, you should you take that literally or is that more a, a metaphorical kind of reference? Um, so we don't know where they are. Um, So it's hard to say much about specifics, but given the content of the letter, um, I think, as I said before, he's writing to an urban audience. I think some of the imagery in the letter reflects a very urban context that only urbanites or urbanites would be much more familiar with. Um, They seem to be have a a Jewish orientation. Um, He doesn't get into debates about the law and so forth that Paul gets into with various Gentile congregations. Um, so it could be a, a, it could be also people of a mix of mixed social levels. Um, he wants them to, he's very critical of, of wealth. He's critical of the rich. He wants them not to, he wants the community not to show favoritism to the rich. So in chapter two, he's a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, caring for the poor he condemns them for offering the best seat, for example, to the rich man who's flashing his gold rings. So um, I think he's getting at that ancient context of patronage, whereby people had to honor their patron in order to receive uh, benefits in return. And James is critiquing that somewhat. Um, it It's he he may be he's writing i think for probably a fairly literate community that is he's using as i mentioned before interesting vocabulary in places that uh, almost sounds like he's trying to impress them mm-hmm. you know with his vocabulary um and some argue and i think this is an interesting idea that he may be writing to a community that um 
is comprised of both Jews and Christian Jews. And this might help us uh, this might help us understand why he does not cite Jesus directly mm. because that wouldn't mean anything to the Jewish members of the community, but the Christian Jewish members might recognize, oh, that's what Jesus taught. Isn't that interesting how James is, how in this letter we see how James is now adapting that teaching of Jesus to suit our circumstances. So they would appreciate it, but he doesn't cite Jesus. He doesn't talk about the death and resurrection. He doesn't talk about all things that were distinctive to the Christian message because he knows there are Jews in that congregation as well, and he doesn't want to alienate them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and he sees himself as a teacher that, that you uh, you mentioned, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So why? Do, so 1.1 refers to Jesus and 2.1 refers to Jesus. Yeah. Is 1.1 actually a part of the letter, or was that something that was tacked on later? Now, most people think 1.1 is part of the letter, but 2.1 or Chapter 2, verse 1, some think is a later edition, what you call an interpolation. There's a tricky text critical issue there. It's a very awkward phrasing in the Greek. And so some scholars through history, and this is not a new thing, think that that was maybe a later addition to the letter. There were scholars in the 19th century who actually thought this was a Jewish document, and they would say that want the first reference to Jesus may also have been an addition, um, but that that hypothesis has never gained a lot of traction, um, but it does otherwise sound like a very Jewish text. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to dive into a few specifics in the text now. James is quite stark in his views of socioeconomic status, which you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and and who will have access to the kingdom of heaven. But I also want to talk a little bit about your specialty in first century economics. So what do people in 2019 reading James need to know about the economics in antiquity before we you know haphazardly apply James's arguments today? Well... One of the things that many historians would argue about economics in antiquity is that um, they did not uh, have this notion of uh, everything getting bigger the way we sometimes hear in modern contexts. You know, the the growth of the economy, the economy is growing and so yeah. forth. Um, there, there is this anthropological notion of limited good. And that means that if I gain, you're losing. Mm-hmm. There's only so many goods to go around, whether that's honor or land or money or food or whatever, what have you. Um, <clears throat> the, not this idea that everybody can gain. Um, so that's one thing I think that's important to remember. Um, there were the, the, the number of elites in the ancient world was small. Most people were at the bottom. So most people are scrambling to to get enough to eat each day. So the concept of a day laborer or poor farmers or, you know, the, the Bible talks a lot about widows and orphans who really were destitute often. So most people were poor. Um, you did have what we call the retainer class. So people who worked for the wealthy, um, uh, you might call them sort of middling <laughs> groups, if you will, but not a notion of a sort of a vast middle class the way we think of that today. Um, so a different kind of structure. 
And the economy, many people think of it as being embedded with everything else. So with politics, with religion, with with family kinship structures, um, there wasn't sort of this separate field called the economy, which you could analyze mathematically. I mean, not that there weren't things like perhaps inflation and there were certainly there was certainly money and uh, a, a pretty elaborate trade system. But um, I don't think we can just plunk, you know, contemporary notions of economics onto the onto the first century. Okay, I understand. Um, and in the, so you have this article that I read, The Degraded Poor and the Greedy Rich, Exploring uh-huh. the Language of Poverty and Wealth in James. Right. And in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, um, you have this section where you write about the degraded poor. Mm-hmm. So what does the degraded poor look like to James in um, in the writings? Well, when I use the word degraded, it means, uh, in a sense, dishonored. And I think the honor and shame were very important cultural values in the ancient world. And generally, the poor were associated with shame. Um, it was easy to slide down the social scale in the ancient world. Mm. It was much more difficult to move up. Um, and I think you can separate these honor, honor, shame, cultural values from things like class in the ancient world. But I think by translating it as degraded, poor, and greedy, rich, James is trying to get at this idea that, say, for example, you treat people, you treat the wealthy with partiality, you're in fact, you're in fact dishonoring the poor. In fact, he says that in chapter two. So by showing more favoritism to the rich, he's trying to uh, preserve, in a sense, the honor or in fact, James is saying that you're in fact dishonoring the poor and he's concerned to maintain um, the honor of the poor. So in chapters 1, 9 to 11, he actually turns those social values upside down. So he tries to say that it's the rich who will um, wither away, as he says, um, but it is the poor who will be uplifted. So in many, in some respects, I think he's going against some of the dominant cultural values that existed in his context. Okay, interesting. Um, so something that I've seen uh, pop up a lot lately is James chapter 2, verse 14, mm-hmm. where it talks about faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. I've heard this in rock songs lately, in Twitter, in Twitter feeds, in comment mm. sections. Um, mm. Can you talk a little bit about the prevalence and the importance of 214? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on that particular verse. Right. Well, some would identify the central theme of James. There's a scholar named Patrick Harton who's who's written a lot about this. He would say the central theme of, of James is integrity or wholeness. And so the idea of faith and works going together, that is you have to you have to walk the talk. Mm. Um, that would reflect that central theme of wholeness. So it's not just about faith or trust. Here I'm, I'm thinking about faith as this notion of trust, but it's also how you act on that trust. So you can't separate those two things. You can't just rely on faith, for example. Now, this verse has been very famous because, um, 
you know, this led in part to Martin Luther not liking James very much because of his emphasis on faith, justification by faith. Um, so he didn't like James because this seems to go against that central teaching. Interesting. And some wonder, again, all these questions are debated, but some wonder, is James, in fact, reacting to a form of Paulinism, that is a form, an, a particular interpretation of Paul, which is emphasizing faith at the expense of works. And so maybe that's part of the reason he's stressing this so much, that you you have to follow through with works. It's not only about faith. Okay, so it seems. Does do you think that James sees the rich as lacking in works? Uh, well, certainly in chapter five, when he he really lets loose on the rich, he says, "Come now, you rich, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you." Um, he critiques the fact that they have all this wealth that's rotting. Uh, it's a very uncomplimentary uh, picture. It's very unflattering. I think it's it's a it's a it's invective. Okay, mm -hmm. it's really he's really. I love that <laughs> line. Hitting I, hard. <laughs> yeah, I read that line today, and I was like, "Whoa, that is wild stuff." Yeah, yeah, and he, he talks about how they've lived in luxury and pleasure, um, and then he talks about the um, the farmers and so forth. But he he says, you know, they've they've um, kept back the wages of the harvesters by fraud. So obviously they're not following through with works because they're exploiting other people. How do you think the author of James would interpret the ways that Christianity has been used well and less well in modern society? Like, what do you think that James would see as our mm -hmm. successes and failures in the centuries since? Right. Well, he he would probably. <laughs> Here I'm. I'm obviously guessing, but sure. I think he would critique the wealth of the of church of the church and of Christians. I think that would certainly would not escape <laughs> James's pen. Um, the author might be critical of the kind of individualistic notions of religion that that exist in the modern day. The notion that it's all about me, or somehow it's about my personal faith. That's the focus here. I mean, um, I'm not trying to say you wouldn't be very interested in faith, but the kind of individualistic focus that we have in the contemporary world might be something that James would have questions about as well. Um, so, yes, I think. And then, you know, just all kinds of economic practices uh, that we see in, in, in with with the, the kind of obsession with with the marketplace that we see in our contemporary world, I, I wonder what James would have to say about that. Can I ask you a question about teaching just in your classes in general? Uh-huh. What are some things that you think that your undergraduates and graduate students find most surprising in your Bible courses? Um, it would vary depending on the student because the students come from a lot of different backgrounds. I think one thing that... Uh, surprises them or, or sometimes can be a source of dismay is is questions of authorship that is that that some of the texts in the new testament are maybe not by whom they claim to be by mm. um, not only with regard to james but for example some of the letters attributed to paul i think that is probably a big one um we do spend some time talking about the historical jesus that can sometimes be controversial so the idea that 
everything in the gospels for example that is associated that are the, all the miracles and teachings that are associated with Jesus you know many scholars question whether or not Jesus actually said all those things or did all those things the idea that the gospels are not eyewitness accounts for example um, if students come out of a context in which in which that has been taught to them all their lives it's very difficult for them then to think about it in a different way. So I try to be very sympathetic given the different contexts and backgrounds that the students come from. Excellent. So a few of the pieces of yours that I read come from 2008 and 2011. And I'm curious if you can tell me about the future of the field. What are Mm -hmm. some of the major questions that scholars such as you and your colleagues that you've mentioned What are you still exploring in future research on the Epistle of James? Yeah, well, I'm still interested in questions of uh, economics. Um, So I'm going to be engaging in some work looking. I'm particularly interested in ancient Egypt right now and the city of Alexandria. So just looking at uh, labor relations, economic practices, taxation practices, I'm not sure if James is from Alexandria, but I'm just interested in looking at possible connections there. So I think more work on James and 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 the economy um, will be coming forth. There's more and work more work being done on the history of the reception or the history of interpretation of James. I think that's very important. Um, connections between James and ancient philosophy. So, for example, Many scholars have seen parallels between James and certain Stoic teachings, uh, the, idea, the idea of care for the soul and so forth that you find in ancient Stoicism. People are exploring with with uh, connection to James. Um, James has some apocalyptic tendencies, so looking in J- at James in light of apocalyptic imagery, I think, is is continues to be of, of interest as well as close studies on the actual language and vocabulary of the letter. I think that will continue continue as well. Um, James's use in the early church. Yeah. Uh, that's, it's very interesting because in the East, like the Eastern Empire, the first time James shows up is as scripture is in origin, who's early third century. In the West, it's not till later in Hilary of Poitiers in the in the fourth century. So uh, what, how do we account for the gap between, you know, when the letter was first written and then when it's first cited as scripture, Uh, you know? um, Yeah. How do we understand that? Uh, Where there were, there were disputes about authorship of James as well in the early church. So it's not that every early Christian thought that James the just necessarily wrote this letter. Um, so I think more work in that direction as well. So I think there's lots to be done. There is a lot <laughs> to be done. Yeah. Well, that is wonderful. Um, to conclude, do you have any things that you think that people should read if they want to know, if they want to use this episode as like a diving off point into future studies? Like, what do you think that people should uh, should take the time to look into? Um, there is a good book. It's been out for some time by a British scholar named Richard Balcom. I might be pronouncing his name in, incorrectly, but it's B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M, I think it is, on James. It's a commentary, but um, 
he he compares James's use of Jesus traditions to um, the book of Proverbs uh, or the book of Sirach, which is what you call a deuterocanonical text um, use of Proverbs. And then he thinks about James in the context of the modern day. He also looks at Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish philosopher. James was his favorite text, mm. one of his favorite texts. So he looks at its use by Kierkegaard. So that's a kind of an interesting book um, that I think is accessible to a pretty broad audience that people might be interested in, in reading about James. Um, if you're really interested in things like liberation theolo- theology and so forth, Elsa Thomas has a, a book that's been out for a while called The Scandalous Message of James, a short book that people might find interesting. So she's looking at James in the context of Latin America. Um, Patrick Harton, I've mentioned before, he's a scholar, has written quite a bit about James, um, including some more popular kinds of books about James. Um, so those would be three that I'd mention. And I think that you have some stuff posted on your academia.edu profile, don't you? Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Dr. Batten, this has been a really, really fun conversation. I'm so grateful to you for spending some time with me today to talk about your work in the Epistle of James. Um, It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you for your interest. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.